The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, uh, the 25th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. 10,000 hospital workers are set to strike tomorrow. The HSC says uh, that this will result in elective inpatient procedures being deferred, the significant cancellation of scope procedures, reduced outpatient services, reduced laboratory services, reduced catering services, reduced operating theatre activity. The reality is uh, the action by members of the SIPTU Trade Union will impact on every department in 38 hospitals across the country. Country, the Central Mental Hospital and St. Eta's in Portran. The dispute, as you know, is over pay promised but not paid as the Department of Public Expenditure hasn't funded the increases, claiming the government made a significant, decent and fair offer and that pay scales would start to increase from November of this year. Some management sources are suggesting that this would be a 7% pay rise on top of increases already agreed under the Public Service Stability Agreement of 7.4%. We're joined by SIP2's Paul Bell. A very good morning to you, Paul. Thanks morning, for coming Michael. in to us. Uh, your dispute isn't just with the Department of Public Expenditure at this stage. It's with all of government. We heard the Taoiseach Leo Bradgar speaking in the Dáil last week, mm-hmm. uh, talking about how the agreement you have with the HSE mm-hmm. and the Department of Health uh, is it being interpreted differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, somewhat tetchy Minister for Health going into the Cabinet meeting mm-hmm. uh, this morning saying uh, that what was on offer to you was a, a good offer and even if SIP2 doesn't think so the Labour Court still remains on offer to find a resolution. Right, that's a fair detailed introduction, uh, Michael. Uh, first of all, the, um, the first casualty in any conflict is the truth. And the truth is that the the offer made by the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform last week to our members uh, was 1.2 million euros of monies that are owed to our members amounting to 16.2. We already agreed that we would enter into a negotiation that we would phase the payments over a period. Mm. The Department of Public Expenditure Reform accepted the quantum figure that was produced. The employer for our members is in the main the health service executive. The health service executive Uh, completed the job evaluation process last October. They signed off on that process, which means as of the job evaluation scheme, monies are basically owed from that date. However, we would have to negotiate that Mm. because of the impact of costs. And we've set set out a stall in that to try and... And I think you told us the last time you'd have expected increases from November of last year, October of last year. And and again, Mm. if that was the only issue we were talking about, we'd Mm. be in a much better place, but we're not. But yes, uh, sorry, on Friday, um, an, a position was put to us at late in the evening. Uh, we examined that offer. There were technical flaws within that offer. In other words, what government were pushing forward had not been properly researched, and the figures that were given to us were not correct. So we, it did indicate mm. over the weekend, you're going to have to revise that. But more importantly, Michael, we deferred a strike last week, uh, uh, on mm. good faith of trying to move the negotiation forward. The Workplace Relations Commission understood that that was the first offer probably being made by the government. We would consider that over the weekend and have some inter- interaction over the weekend if necessary. Uh, and that then another position or maybe a revised position would be put to us 
on Monday. We deferred today's strike action to give space because the Workplace Relations Commission requested that. Mm. And that was to the benefit of the health service executive. And we had no difficulty in trying to do that. But from early yesterday morning, it was quite clear that the government are not interested in settling this dispute. And what they done was they attacked an element of our agreement, which we will never accept. Mm. And that was to basically change a part of the job evaluation agreement which would make it uh, a realistic situation whereby air members would not get the full benefit of their job evaluation. And we will not accept that, and we cannot accept Which, that. in total, when you take the 10,000 people into account, comes to 16.2 billion used, or million. You said 1.2 million was put on the table. Yeah, well, this, this, initially, Michael, there are 6,500 people mm. involved. Other people are balloting and being involved in this strike because they fear that they will not get their job evaluation process as promised. It doesn't mean they will get an increase in pay, but if, if they have no job evaluation process mm. or the government believes that they can play, you know, loose with it, well then there's no integrity in it mm. and we don't know where we are. Uh, and um, the Labour Court, by the way, the, the, the employer has no right to determine that it matters, matters, matters will go mm. to the Labour Court uh, and they'll go there for binding arbitration. Mm. Uh, we won't accept that. I just uh, thought it was a, a little bit curious uh, that uh, the Minister for Health would uh, back up, if you like, what mm. the Department of Public Expenditure is saying, given that you've an agreement with mm. his officials. Well, maybe the minister should read the agreement. Maybe you should read the, the agreement concerning the job evaluation process. For in there, it will tell him what needs to be done. He may also communicate to his officials. But who made the agreement? Oh, that goes back with Sip in 2007. Mm, yeah, and yeah. the Department, and the of, Department Health. of Health. And the Health Service Executive. Yeah, the, the department that Simon Harris oversees. Oversees. And, yeah. you know, mm. he, if that was, he also should consider the fact that his employees, the workers who are mm. going on strike tomorrow, he has an obligation to them. And the obligation is, is basically to recognise that the Department of Public Expenditure Reform, who seem to be more in charge of his department than he mm. is, are basically frustrating this agreement, which our members signed mm. up to. Well, who, who made this offer? The, the, the Department of Public Expenditure because, Reform. Because well, uh, that, that's interesting as well. Yes. And why was it not the Department of Health? And I know that the Department of Public Expenditure holds mm. the purse strings, mm. uh, but you have an agreement with the Department of Health. Were Absolutely. officials not uh, present for... Oh, they were. They are mm. indeed present, and the Health Service Executive mm. is present. And I think what's happening is... Um, okay, know, so it is a whole of government. So when Simon Harris yeah, but says it's but a fair agreement, it's one that, no. on this basis... Here's the challenge, Michael. The Health Service Executive tell us, as mm. of last year... Yeah. The agree that job evaluation process is correct, right? And a, a circular called ten seventy one will apply. Another government department comes in who just happens to have the monies, and they say that doesn't suit us, so it's not applying. Now, there's no way that anybody involved in negotiations can accept that. Mm. And I think that for a strike to go ahead on that basis uh, to be forced is really regrettable, and it's unacceptable to us. We've been doing our very best over the last number of months to make sure that we came through a negotiated settlement. Mm. Uh, what seems to be going on is in internal politics between the Department of Public Expenditure Reform, the Health Service Executive and the Department of Health. At the end of the day, Air Member's line minister is Minister Harris. And we expect him to get involved and address this matter. Because as you know, Michael, when this dispute starts it's much more difficult to resolve things. Mm. People feel... And there's no stopping it now, is there? Well, there's, there's, there's absolutely nothing being put to us to, to, to address this matter. 
uh, and as I speak mm. to you, uh, as far as we are concerned, all over the country. In less than 23 hours. We are now preparing mm. to go yeah. out and strike. And are there contingency plans? Uh, contingency plans are being discussed locally, and we do believe mm. that they are moving along the way they should. That is not to say, Michael, there will not be a disruption to patients, and we do regret mm. that. But we cannot resolve this dispute on our own, and we cannot resolve the dispute through prescribed solutions. Mm. We will do our very best. Uh, we have a strike tomorrow. We've made it quite clear that we're available to go back to the Workplace Relations Commission, that we are pre- prepared mm. to do that, uh, should we be invited. But nevertheless, at this stage, it, it looks very clear that we mm. are going on strike tomorrow. Will patients be fed tomorrow? Yes. Will staff be fed tomorrow? No. Will uh, cleaning take place? Uh, essential cleaning. Which means in the emergency department? Places where, in it's, where, it's, essential, where it's essential to, to control confection. Uh, sorry, apologies, infection, mm. sorry. Mm. Yes, absolutely. I can't describe every kind of yep. job that's mm. going to be performed, Michael, and not going to be performed. Mm. It is a dispute. And as you can hear this morning, the HSE are now taking steps to try and reduce services to contain that and alter that whatever contingency cover that that can be provided uh, will be effective mm. in the care of patients. But your members will only work if it's in uh, an emergency scenario. That's what contingency means. Okay. That's what it means. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. where we are. Uh, and we do understand that that creates difficulties. Mm. However, there's nobody can say that we have not tried to negotiate mm. a settlement to this. And we do understand so that... So planned operations, planned surgery is going to be cancelled. Mm. Well, that's what the health mm. service executive mm. are saying. Mm. The, at the end of the day, SIP2 can't determine that. Mm. That's what the health service executive yeah. are saying. Mm. Uh, I I will have to see how that fares out over the mm. next 24 hours. Uh, it's not a good posi- It's mm. not a nice position to be in. It's not a good position to be yeah. in. But it is a strike. And we have always make, made it quite clear mm. from, the, from the get-go... There'll be no scopes, that, no colossal... We don't know that, Michael. No, we don't know that. And I'm not going to answer that because we don't genuinely know mm. what plans the HSE have, mm. what priorities they have. members won't sterilise the scopes? I don't know that. Mm. I do know that all emergency procedures will be taken care of. That's what mm. I do know. Okay. Okay. Mm. Right. So I think it's a little bit unfair to mm. put that because I, I, oh, can't, no. I can't answer yeah. it honestly. That's yeah. all I'm saying to you. No. But, well, the reason I'm asking you is that uh, there was a lot of confusion going into last week's plan strike yes, uh, yes. and uh, a lot of confusion after uh, a resolution was found. And as we said last week, the HSE seemed to be scrambling at both ends uh, of that particular yeah. situation. Uh, and it would seem uh, pretty similar this week in that nobody knows what we're facing into tomorrow. Uh, and as well, I tell you why nobody knows what we're facing into Michael in simple terms is that health uh, support staff just don't go on strike. Mm. I mean, I think it'd be very um, challenging for any member of the public or member of support staff to tell us when the last time okay. there was a strike in support staff. It's 1982, I believe. Right. Uh, and as we said the last time, uh, there's 10,000 SIP2 members who yeah. will strike. There's other support workers and other staff who mm. won't. Uh, pass those pickets uh, tomorrow so uh, there could be a lot of disruption which is unforeseen yeah. uh, and then where do we go from here into next week you're talking about three days yeah. of strike but just to correct something Michael first of all we have written to every single trade union of letting them know what we expect from them as they would to us mm. and they're the rules of Congress and we will abide by them we're not trying to entangle other people in their dispute mm. who are not involved you are correct to say there's a three day dispute next week uh, it's up to government 
how they approach that. The, the Minister for Health cannot remain detached from this matter. He needs to roll up his sleeves and get stuck in and defend his department and defend his workers uh, from what's going on with the Department of Public Expenditure Reform. Uh, at, at the end of the day, we know what will settle this dispute. Mm. We know that we can compromise and negotiate, but we are not going to allow a government department dictate to us or dictate to our members that they can change their agreements without a mandate from our members. And that's the, that's where we mm. are stuck. It actually regressed over the weekend. Will you go to the Labour Court? Uh, we will not go to the Labour Court on the terms that are uh, being put forward by the government. Uh, which basically means, why are we not going to Labour Court? That's the question that should be asked. Number one, there's a number of issues have never been discussed properly within the Workplace Relations Commission. And number two, uh, we are not accepting binding arbitration. Our members have a right to have a say uh, on any outcome from any process, be it the Workplace Relations Commission or the Labour Court. Hmm. And uh, is there any other way of diverting this action? Because obviously people who aren't involved feel as though they're being held ransom. Well, I, I don't know how to deal with that question. Mm. People being held ransom. There's no we're, well. We're not, people have been waiting for a number of months for a, a significant operation. We're not involved in that. You know, we're, I know. I mm. don't know what the government would say to that. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, we we are feeling most of those mm. questions. I didn't say that they're feeling yeah. held to ransom yeah, by yeah, Sinto, I know, yeah, yeah, I know. but by the dispute. The dispute. Look, the dispute impacts on patients. Mm. No doubt yeah. about that. But I mean, government have something to say instead of tweeting all the time. They need to say something. They need to engage. They need to be able to tell the public why they've allowed this to develop the way it is. Someone tells me that mm. a serious offer was made of 1.2 million euro to a 16.2 million claim. By the way, that they owe. This is not a pay claim. Mm. They actually owe this money. The government owe this money to its employees. Uh, and then, and then, on top of that, they attack the fundamentals of the actual job evaluation agreement while you're trying to negotiate. These people are not serious about resolving this issue and our members believe that there's some effort there to try and make an example of them for all their failures of government in protecting the public service agreement. And that's what our members are saying. Like We we have a duty to work within the public service agreement and we have. And if you've noted, by the way, government never said we didn't. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you for coming in to us uh, this morning. Uh, That's uh, Paul Bell, SIPSU Health Division Organiser. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. The crisis in direct provision and in housing labour. Just how much further we have to go to eliminate discrimination and violations of human rights in Ireland. This is according to Emily Logan, who is the Chief Commissioner with the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, which launched its annual report to the houses of the Oireachtas yesterday and joins us now. And good morning to you, Emily Logan, and thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to be with us. Uh, It's work in progress uh, as uh, the Irish Times editorial puts it today and uh, that discrimination doesn't just relate to asylum seekers in this country but it's across society, people with uh, disabilities, single parent families and those who are reliant on welfare in order to pay their rent it seems. That's right. Um, We have uh, what's called a Your Rights line. It's a telephone line where members of the public can ring in to find out information about their rights. And over 2018, the top three things that people were ringing us about in terms of discrimination, disability was the most common, then the housing assistance payment. So that's people who are homeless or seeking um, homes, but who were in receipt of benefit from the state. Um, And race is the the, the number three where people ring us. 
about discrimination. Okay, and uh, of the 1,700 uh, calls uh, that you had, 850 related to to the Equal Status Act or the Employment Equality Act? That's right. There are two different acts around the equality uh, legislation. One is what's called the Equal Status Act, so it prohibits, the legislation prohibits discrimination on nine grounds. So grounds like disability, like family status, like membership of the traveller community. So if you've been discriminated against, you can take a case. Uh, in the first instance, you have to, within two months, take an action by making a complaint to whatever the local um, or wherever the, the discrimination occurred. And then you can take a case to the Workplace Relations Commission. So our job as a commission is to take on cases that make it meet the right legal threshold and our legal team will basically take on a case on behalf of an individual who's been discriminated. Of course, that's free of charge. We're state uh, body. We're paid for by the taxpayer. So that service is free to the public. Right. Uh, and uh, is uh, discrimination uh, something uh, that uh, you see in every corner of uh, the country, regardless of uh, where people live or um, the type of work that they're doing? Uh, because uh, it's uh, your fourth year now as a commission and you've uh, achieved quite a lot in that four years and improved human rights in this country to a large degree, as you've been highlighting yourself. Yes, I think, I mean, the, the discrimination happens throughout the country. So if you take, if you take the Loud, Meads Loud region, Department of Housing report um, in April of this year indicated that the higher number of homeless people in the northeastern region um, are accessing local authority emergency accommodation in that region. So we've been, our legal team have been out to Monaghan, out to Cavan, talking to people in emergency accommodation who are struggling. And we've also met people here closer uh, to Dublin in family hubs. Um, the people who are mainly discriminated in those areas are lone parents, single parents, predominantly women, and people with disabilities. So I suppose as an organisation, while we're a growing organisation, we've now got 65 staff, we're appointed by the president, so we're independent, we don't work for the government. So it's important that people know about us, but we're very conscious that we need to be out and about all of the time trying to communicate to people that we exist so our legal team physically go out uh, to places and connect with civil society or NGOs who have trusted relationships with communities and hang- who can signpost us to people who need our help. And you say that housing is such a, a crisis in this country that it will remain your primary focus going ahead into uh, the next 12 months. Uh, there's little sight of uh, progress in terms of solving some of the very serious problems that people find themselves in. And one of them is uh, being discriminated against, as you've been finding, because uh, they're receiving HAP payments under the housing assistance payments. That's right. That's right. In, in January 2016, uh, the state introduced a piece of legislation where it prohibited discrimination on what's called the housing assistance ground. So that means if you're in receipt of housing assistance from the state, that a landlord can't discriminate against you. But in fact, our experience is that it, in fact, it's number two on the list of the highest number of discrimination cases that we've been dealing with. But what makes it difficult is enforcement of Irish discrimination law in Ireland relies heavily on individual complaints. So the discrimination has to have happened then the person has to make a complaint and then they have to take a case. And really, it's we think it's unreasonable uh, for that burden to be placed on individuals because when people are struggling and trying to find a home and prioritising their families, the last thing they have energy for is to get into a system of making a complaint. So we're saying that the burden should shift from the individual onto the state and the state should be assuming 
a much more uh, human rights and equality uh, approach to housing uh, delivery, in particular social mm-hmm. housing for people who are struggling. Well, I suppose it's not unreasonable for a, a landlord to look for a reference uh, when they're renting out to somebody. And uh, I was reading uh, this week uh, that one of uh, the methods landlords are, are using to avoid taking in HAP tenants is to look for professional references. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's one of the, the ways in which we have noticed that landlords are filtering out, if you like, people who are out of employment or people who might be on a housing assistance payment. And that's actually illegal. I mean, we have taken a number of cases in that regard. But that's that's a way of landlords saying uh, we can find out. There are ways, subtle ways of landlords finding out whether people are working or not or whether they might be in, in receipt of payment. So our experience is that people go to see uh, go to see a flat or go to see a house or a rental property and then very quickly when it becomes clear that they're either not working or they're on housing assistance payment that the landlord finds some reason uh, other reason to say that there's been a lot of interest in the house or they're looking for uh, professionals or business people that kind of um, language or even that kind of uh, barrier is actually not legal anymore all right. Uh, well, it's obviously uh, very important work that you do, and uh, it's a, a very busy commission uh, that you oversee. Uh, one of uh, the highest profile uh, changes that you have brought about is uh, to have uh, the bar on people who are in direct uh, provision uh, working. Uh, that has been struck down as being unconstitutional. That's right. That's a case that we were involved in. I mean, in other countries, what you see in terms of anti uh, immigrant sentiment is about people taking other people's jobs or people not contributing to the state. And we were only one of two countries in Europe that didn't allow people who were seeking asylum in this country to work. Now, we have high employment here. We don't have a difficulty like they have in other countries. But we have people who've been living in direct provision for a long time who weren't allowed to work. So if you're not allowed to work, you're not allowed to contribute to the state. It makes it very difficult to integrate and I suppose we're looking at the long-term um, matter of integration and what's best for society in general. So we were involved in a case of what's called amicus. That means that we're involved in a Supreme Court case where our legal team will bring in information about the international legal standards and try to demonstrate to the court the reason why Ireland isn't compliant with international Mm. human rights law. So that was a successful case. In February of last year, the Supreme Court ruled that there can't be a blanket ban on asylum seekers coming to this country working. And it's better for everybody. If everybody has an opportunity to work, uh, our economy does better, our society does better, people integrate and live together respectfully and in a way that people describe as tolerant but mm. we have a we have a good peaceful society here I, I, I suppose tolerance uh, depends a, a lot on integration uh, we're becoming a, a more and more diverse society uh, is it possible to rank us uh, in terms of how we perform in relation to other countries as a diverse country well i think we're doing very well i mean at the moment our commission is in the position of chair of the European Network of National Human Rights Institutions. So that's across 70, or sorry, I beg your pardon, 47 countries that extend right over to Russia. So we have a good sense of what's happening regionally across Europe. And we compare very favourably, very well in terms of um, our compassion as a people, our respect for other um, 
groups of people coming into Ireland. So it's unusual to have the kind of backlash that we've seen in Ireland. So, for instance, we have a scheme where we deliberately support local projects for setting up intercultural projects. And one of them actually is uh, a scheme in Mosney Direct Provision Centre where we have given a grant to <clears throat> excuse me, the local Irish mm. Girl Guides in Mosney who are setting up a Girl Guide programme in the Direct Provision Centre. So there are loads of small community projects that are happening all over Ireland and they're the kind of things that work. They're the kind of things that make a difference for, for people in their communities. OK, we'll leave it there. But uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Emily Logan is uh, Chief Commissioner with uh, the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, Sinn Féin wants uh, to know why waiting times uh, for children with uh, scoliosis have uh, not been reduced as uh, promised. Let's talk about this uh, with uh, Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin's uh, spokesperson for health. And you've been pointing out uh, that 3,500 children are waiting for their first appointment. Uh, but that's just the children that we know about. You say that there's 10,000 children waiting who are hidden on adult waiting lists. How could that be? Well, they're not. Uh, good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Um, they, they're not counted uh, as children on the list, so they, they are on adult lists. Uh, so therefore, we actually don't know. The, the estimate is that there could be um, a, a minimum of 10,000 children waiting on adult lists. So I suppose why that is important is you know, for formulating children's health policy and for any plans that are going to tackle these unacceptable waiting lists the very, very first thing I would have thought that the HSE and the, and the Department of Health and the government want is an accurate picture of what it is that they're dealing with. And they don't have that if they're not counting children separately unless they're on the list for uh, for a specific children's hospital. So there would be kids on the list for the matter, uh, for James's, for Vincent's, for Connolly, for other hospitals who wouldn't necessarily be counted as children. So mm. from uh, the, the, the perspective of public health policy, and formulating any kind of strategy that's going to accurately um, assess and deal with the issue. I think you've, you've got to really start from a place where you understand what the issue is first. But if you're not counting all of the, the kids that are waiting, then you really are not going to be in a position to be able to deal with it. Uh, uh, and age with this, I take it, is particularly important, uh, given uh, that the curvature of uh, the spine changes during growth sprouts, as uh, spurts. Exactly. Yeah, I spoke to a, a man yesterday whose eight-year-old son uh, had been waiting for 10 months for an appointment. Eventually, the family uh, got the money to €600 Euros to be able to go private, which they shouldn't have to do, but they mm. did because they were so concerned about their son. And in the time that he was waiting, the curvature on his spine had gone from 35 degrees to 70 degrees. He's still waiting. Uh, he's been given, he was given a date in March for an operation that was cancelled. He was given another date in May for an operation that was cancelled. He now doesn't know when the operation is going to be. And his son is now suffering breathing difficulties because the, uh, because he, he's sure. been, his, his lungs are being compressed. So it's not so much. I mean, obviously, mm. the, the waiting is, is not acceptable, but it's the damage that's done in the intervening time to these kids. You know, I mean, mm. he described how his uh, his son had to come in. He was playing in the snow and he had to lift him in. He thought that he was just cold. They didn't realise that the, the curvature was so bad. He thought that he was just cold and they put him into the bath and his son was crying because he was in mm. so much pain. Now his son is missing out on school. Uh, he's he's in. Uh, he's eight years of age. He's just made his communion, mm. but he's you know he's he's started to miss days off school now purely and simply because he's in pain. And mm. the longer it goes on, 
the worse it's getting because now he can't sleep at night because uh, because he can't he's having breathing difficulties. So you know, it, and it, the it stress is, is putting on the whole family. It's one of uh, the stories I think uh, you relayed uh, to the doll last week, uh, and how the father is ringing Crumlin Hospital two three times a week to no avail. You told another story of a fourteen year old girl who was deemed in urgent need of surgery last February, but she's still yeah. waiting. She's still waiting. And this is this is the issue. These kids are deemed as urgent cases. And let's not forget, you know, there was a primetime programme in February 2017 mm. that just really highlighted uh, the, the sort of pain and distress that these families are going through. And I mean, really, it, 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 that, that just broke my heart. I think it broke the heart of everyone who, who saw it. In the immediate aftermath of that, the minister came out and made a promise. His promise was that kids wouldn't have to wait longer mm. than four months. Now, I've spoken to people from the Scoliosis Advocacy Network and they tell me that that, that, that promise is not being met on any level okay. at the moment. You raised this you know. as a, a topical issues question last week. What did Minister Simon Harris have to say to you? Well, I wish that Minister Simon Harris had turned up for what I've covered in the papers recently. Uh, Minister Harris doesn't turn up to take topical issues. Um, he uh, Usually uh, a junior minister takes it on his behalf. Um, so what we are being told is that they, they have made some efforts with, um, mm. with regard to the waiting list. The, they had no answer for me as to why the theatre in Crumlin Children's Hospital is still only open three days a week. And I think your, your listeners will appreciate the scandal that mm. that is. I mean, if we have a, a waiting list, the way the way that we do, I would say that theatre should be open seven days a week. Um, uh, on this occasion, though, the junior minister who took the question and responded to you on behalf of the minister was Catherine Byrne, and uh, the response she gave you really was remarkable. We'll hear just a little bit of it now. Nobody wants to see children, neither myself or yourself or anybody else in here, wants to see children who uh, are waiting on a hospital waiting list, particularly with such a severe uh, illness as scoliosis of the spine. Um, I'm not too sure about some of the things that the deputy has raised about the hidden list, and I'll have to inquire about that because uh, I don't have anything to respond to on that. However, I will uh, assure the, the deputy that anything that you have said this afternoon, and again, just my apologies for the minister not being here. I certainly will bring back to him. I'm sure this transcript will be made available tomorrow as well, which will bring to his attention. And I will um, request that the minister may consider into the future to take some of the topical issues, if it's possible at all, how it might be, might be of help to people who have been here a number of times raising issues and the minister hasn't been here to reply to them directly. Again, I, I, I'm given the written word. I can intervene on some of them, but some of the questions I've asked I don't have answers for. I don't know whether he has, but I will go back to him. Thanks. I thought that really was a, a remarkable contribution. That's uh, from it Junior was. Minister for Health, uh, Catherine Byrne, responding to you, Louise O'Reilly, mm-hmm. saying, uh, yeah, look, I think the Minister should be here to answer the questions. Uh, I'm kind of embarrassed that he's not here to answer the questions. I don't know why he isn't. Uh, you gave uh, the question to us in advance in a written format, and I was given a written response to read to you, but there's nothing of the hidden list, and I don't know the answer to that, and I'll ask the Minister to come back to you on it. Yeah, I, it really was disgraceful. I mean, and it's not Minister Byrne's fault. Mm. You know, she's she's given the script and and as she set herself two and a half hours notice and sent into the chamber to read it out on behalf of the Minister for Health. But when you are raising serious issues, you really do need the Minister there to be able to address them. I mean, can you imagine? Okay, it was bad enough for me to have to hear it, but can you imagine if you were the parent of a child who's waiting? And having their their uh, their operations postponed, mm. or indeed not, even just not hearing anything at all. I mean, that father who rings Crumlin Hospital three times a week. Can you imagine if he was tuning in to listen to that response? I mean, really, 
you know, it would be very, very hard to keep going under those circumstances, particularly given that, you know, once RTE ran the, the primetime programme, the minister was the first one to the microphone to say that he was ashamed of how the kids had been treated and he was deeply sorry for, for, uh, for what was happening. And he gave a commitment that no child would wait for four months. And then when we realise that kids are left waiting, that we have these hidden waiting lists, the minister disappears and we can't find him when, uh, when, he, when he is needed to really uh, to, to answer these questions. I think, you know, any of the parents um, listening into that whose kids are at home and in pain, mm. I think they would be very, very, very disappointed um, at that response. You yeah. know? I, mean, it's, well, I mean, it's one you know, thing... We, we know uh, that the, the people in the hospitals are working yeah. as hard as they possibly can, but they need strategic direction. The minister gave a commitment. No child would wait for four months. Mm. That's never been met. It's one thing, I suppose, an opposition spokesperson saying the minister didn't answer the question, uh, but we've a a minister of state, Catherine Byrne, there saying the minister didn't answer the question. Yes. Oh, no, absolutely. And I mean, my my colleague, Maurice Quinlivan, has been in the chamber 13 times um, since he was elected to raise issues in relation to um, Limerick University Hospital. And the minister hasn't taken those questions once. Um, it is it is very very regretful. I fully appreciate, by the way, that the minister is busy, but you know we put in topical issues. They're given a, a good bit of notice. You, you can guess on any given day that there's going to be a topical issue in relation to health. Absolutely, the minister can't take every single one of them himself. That's completely understood. And you know, if it was an occasional thing that uh, that a junior minister stood mm. in, I don't think anyone would 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 mind that. We know that the ministers are busy. Yeah. But this particular minister seems it never turns up to take topical issues and it's very, very regrettable. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Louise O'Reilly is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health and uh, a TD for Dublin Fingal. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Paddy phoned in in relation to the strike tomorrow by the health support workers. And he says that while the strike is going ahead, who's held responsible for our loved ones if something goes wrong? It feels to him like they don't care and they don't understand what is wrong. Okay. There, Sean from Drogheda says there'll be huge disruption tomorrow mm. if this strike happens. And then if more strikes take place, feels that the government is a disgrace in this situation because they are letting the strike go ahead effectively and feels that the workers so far have been very reasonable. Mm. James from Dundalk, once again, the public sector workers hold the rest of us to ransom. I feel sorry for those whose appointments are going to be cancelled. The health system is a shambles. We hear the stories on your show all the time, Michael, and it's just getting worse. How is this going to help the situation? It's not. Okay. well, it's not going anywhere otherwise, it seems. And don't forget that there are two sides in this dispute. Uh, One side says there's a a deal uh, and that that deal is not being honoured. Declan says, in fairness to the trade union SIPTA, they deferred the action to allow a compromise to be reached. They've really done all they can when a deal was promised. The talks have failed. So what other choice do they have but to take action? It took for a strike 
for the nurses to get some form of resolution. Okay, well it's a a difficult situation, there is no doubt Uh, there's uh, always two sides uh, to a dispute and there usually is a resolution, I don't know of any dispute that hasn't been resolved and uh, that's the point that the Taoiseach had been making about this last week when he was calling for SIPTA to go into the Labour Court. Uh, We've heard why SIPTA won't do that, Uh, they aren't uh, in a a position uh, they say uh, to go into that process when everything has hasn't been exhausted in the Workplace Relations Commission and they'd find themselves in a setting where there'd be a a binding ruling made and uh, they already have an agreement, they say, which uh, the government is not honouring. Right, from Drogheda thinks that these workers are a disgrace to be going on strike, affecting services in the hospitals, which are already under enormous strain. There should be another way and doesn't think in hospitals that strikes should be acceptable. Okay, yeah, I'm not sure what else people can do if they feel uh, that uh, they have a a grievance of uh, such a degree. Jim says that he's a hospital appointment tomorrow. Mm, yep. Should he still go or are they all being cancelled? Does Don't anyone know. know what's happening? Don't know. Don't know. Okay. Yep. Mary says that it, it should have gone ahead last week as planned because the way it happened, it was called off at the last minute mm. and everything was affected anyway. Mm. So she yeah. she wonders now is going to be like another day mm. of um, mayhem, as yeah. she puts mm-hmm. it. Okay, well, I, I suppose uh, just go back uh, to Jim. Uh, I think the best advice uh, to you is uh, if you haven't heard from the HSE, uh, attend your appointment as scheduled. Uh, but uh, if you haven't heard from them, don't be surprised if you do hear from the HSE later in the day because uh, this is a, an ongoing process and undoubtedly cancellations uh, will happen throughout the day and more and more people will be notified as time goes on. Um, Joanne phoned in and Joanne says that these workers in hospitals, Michael, they may not be nurses or doctors, but they are the key to a hospital running efficiently. They do so many different jobs. You're talking about the porters, mm. the cleaners, the la- you know mm. the people who bring around the food, etc. And she believes that they are hardworking and wouldn't be taking this action unless they felt they had no choice. Mm, So a mix of Mm. reaction really, isn't there, to that. Mm -hmm. Um, On your discussion there with Louise O'Reilly, the Sinn Féin health spokesperson on the scoliosis waiting lists, Mm. uh, a listener says, desperately sad, listening to the plight of children with scoliosis, I thought the minister was going to make sure that they would get their surgery when this was put under the spotlight last year. It's seems absolutely ridiculous that a theatre is only opened three days a week. That really does beggar belief, Mm. she says. Um, The Scoliosis um, Advocacy Network tweeted us to say some hospitals do not count the amount of children who await OPD. All patients are classed as adults. We don't know how many children languish on wait lists for care across the HSE. Child-specific wait lists must be published. Target wait times for care must be established. Okay, and that goes back uh, to uh, the point uh, that Louise O'Reilly made in her question to the minister last week, uh, that there's 3,500 children who are on waiting lists, but they're just the children that we know about, and uh, that another 10,000 children are waiting for treatment, but they're hidden on adult Mm. waiting lists. Uh, another listener, all the waiting lists, Michael, that we hear about in so many different areas. And yet the government is allowing a strike 
to go ahead tomorrow. For children living with scoliosis, it's very painful and they shouldn't be allowed or left to Mm. wait for years to get the surgery that's needed. Okay. A bit of response to that. Mm. Uh, On climate change, Michael. Yeah. We had... um, Uh, phone call from John and he's been listening to your various conversations around climate change as he puts it and he's just wondering if what the government this plan that the government is proposing is really feasible are they really expecting that everyone will have money to buy brand new electric cars in the future and do away with their coal fires or their gas and oil central heating Grand if all new houses are going to be eco-friendly and mm. that's what you're buying mm. and that's what you know. But expecting householders to borrow money to retrofit their homes, he feels is going to be a step too far and can't see it happening. OK, well, maybe he's right, uh, but uh, maybe we won't be able to afford 10 or 20 euro a, a litre of diesel or the price of coal or not uh, insulating our houses uh, because the cost of heating them, regardless of what system you have, will be so expensive. as. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. As a result, and uh, I think that may be what the government meant when they were talking about nudging us in that direction. Peter phoned in and he feels, in relation to climate change, that it's a whole load of garbage. (laughs) He says Mm -hmm. that there Mm -hmm. are so many pressing issues in this country, not least the homeless crisis. I know another listener Mm -hmm. said this yesterday. And that to see the government coming out with all of these proposals and suggestions, do they not realise that not everyone in this country is flush with money and will be able to adapt to Mm. these changes? I know what has been proposed is going to be spread out over a period of time, but I feel that the government needs to be realistic and perhaps they might start leading by example. When that happens, maybe, just maybe, the Mm. rest will follow. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a highly aspirational plan. How it'll be implemented is another day's work. Uh, I think uh, the idea of retrofitting these houses or coming in with alternative heating systems and uh, insulating in them and getting solar panels and all that sort of stuff uh, would cost in the region of 50 billion euro and I think that's a conservative estimate that Eamon Ryan is being putting forward and uh, an awful lot of money and where we're going to get it from the government says they'll be giving grants and so on but they haven't got 50 billion euro to be giving to people to do this so uh, how it'll work in action is that's another it. day's work uh, Gronya says that it's got to the stage in Ireland Michael she feels that we are going to start being charged 
for breathing in the air. <laughs> she says, okay. we've had the water charges, we've had the mm. bin charges. Now we can't even burn a bit of turf. Mm. Um, she says, what is going to be next? I just think it's just gone mad. The expectation that is now placed on homeowners. If you're lucky enough to have a roof over your head. Mm. And now, and she's making the point about this, prop, about property tax. And um, Are we going to get a rise in that? Is that coming down the line? Well, maybe. Mm. Yeah, it's looking, there's, it's, there's mm. definitely a little bit more conversation around it than there was. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things uh, that uh, you need to balance going into an election when you're drafting a budget uh, because uh, some will be expecting it to be an election budget and others will be expecting it to be a climate change budget and uh, some will say it needs to take both of those boxes uh, and I don't know, we'll see. I had a listener who phoned in, Michael, uh, in relation to the gangland feud, Mm. didn't want to give her name, but just wanted to say, Michael, I'm from Drogheda. I was born and bred in the town and I'd hate for this feud to define what Drogheda is. She says that there's so much going on in Drogheda that's to be praised and to appreciate and that it's awful to see the negativity associated with this. Mm. I, like everybody else, she says, is terrified by what's going on. But I just think it's awful that Drogheda now is going to be considered in the same light that Limerick once was. Mm. And even Limerick now has found it hard to shed that image. Mm-hmm. And thinks that the Gardaí and the members of the Oireachtas need to work together to come up with a way of stamping this out in the town once and for all. And that people, ordinary people, need to do their bit to assist the Gardaí if they know of any information. Yeah, well, I think everybody would agree with that. I I mean, when you hear of people uh, calling in and saying, uh, would you ever do something to penalise people who allow their dogs to foul the street? Uh, It seems such a a small thing. We have a society and we have rules and laws and all of that sort of thing, uh, but uh, we have a, a lawless town, a state of anarchy to some degree in the town of Drogheda. Okay, we'll finish on that. All right, thanks for that, Marie, and thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you've been hearing uh, this morning, uh, first-time buyers who are on average incomes will never be able to buy a house in half of uh, the counties in uh, this country. In counties like Meath, it would take 15 years to save uh, the 10% deposit necessary to... To buy a home. This is a point that Richard Boyd Barrett, people before Profit TD, was making in the Dáil last week, saying that rents in Dublin now are on average 1600 a month. In other words, you'd have to be able to spend €18,000 a year in order to be able to afford to rent. The average cost of a house in the city is 383000 He says you'd need to have saved €40,000 and have a salary of more than €100,000 to be able to afford a house uh, that costs as much. Richard Boyd Barrett joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thank you for joining us. Uh, you say one in five of the population is paying 40% or more of their income on housing. And the experts say it should be no more than a third. Isn't that right? That's right. Yeah, that will be the sort of international standard. Um, uh, And, you know, it stands to reason. If you're paying more than that uh, to put a roof over your head, you're 
very unlikely to have money left over to survive. And you were saying many are, one in five paying 40% or more, but one in 10 paying 60% or more, and one in 20 paying 75% of their income or more. Yeah, which is absolutely shocking. And they would be concentrated uh, quite heavily in, in, you know, my part of uh, South Dublin, the Neary area where, I mean, the, the average figures that we gave for Dublin there are multiples of that in parts of South Dublin. I mean, the average house price now in Dunleary right now is €570,000 uh, and the average rents are running about 2000 or more. Uh, so they're really just shocking. And I mean, but it, it's, a, that. it's an affluent area and I take it it's high earners who live there. Well, you see, that's the, that's the point. I mean, there's huge numbers of ordinary working people, you know, people who work and you know on building sites and work mm-hmm. as nurses and work as low-paid public servants. Uh, so yes, there are some rich people, and that drives up the price. Mm. But the, the stereotype or somewhere done like like Dunleary that everybody's rich is just not true. And of course, if you are on a lower average income uh, in Dunleary, uh, you're really shafted because the prices and the rents are even further out of your reach and you don't get paid extra because you happen to live in Dunleary. Mm. But you probably inherited the house or, or, or bought, bought it 30 or 40 years ago, no? I mean, of course there is mm. that element who would have inherited houses, but uh, there's huge numbers of young working people uh, who may indeed have grown up in council estates, and there are big council estates in uh, in Dunleary, Ballybrack, Sally Noggin, and so on. And uh, so these are not people who have uh, huge property assets or whatever that are their parents mm-hmm. have property assets. Um, and in any event, their parents, are, if, even if they have a house, a small or modest house, uh, their parents are still living in it. And often now you've got two or three generations uh, packed into houses in overcrowded conditions. And in, in normal times in the past, young working people in that situation would have been able to hope with a little bit of saving and having rented for a while uh, to be able to buy their own home or indeed have the option for a council house but Mm. none of those options are available now Uh, and rents continue to rise Uh, so you were suggesting that there be a a rent freeze Uh, to follow an example uh, that uh, is in play in Berlin where they've introduced a five year temporary uh, emergency freeze on rent it was one of a a number of uh, proposals you made during leaders' questions last mm. week that Tanisha Simon Coveney was uh, taking questions and uh, he said it was good to hear some of these positive proposals. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, well, Berlin, as you said, have introduced a five-year rent freeze because they have a housing emergency there as well. Rents have gone through the roof. Uh, they also, uh, there's a, a referendum being proposed to regulate cuckoo funds who have also become a big feature of the Berlin housing sector uh, coming in and buying up vast amounts of property and then essentially being able to manipulate rents to whatever levels they want and to completely unaffordable levels. Uh, And the people of Berlin have reacted very strongly to this. Uh, There's a government that's left-leaning now in in Berlin and between popular pressure and uh, the left government in Berlin, these measures are being proposed that would limit the amount of property that these vulture or cuckoo funds could buy, so they couldn't control and monopolise uh, and manipulate the market. Uh, so those, you know, my point to Simon Coveney was very simple. If they can do it in Berlin, why mm. can't they do it here? 
Uh, I also uh, pointed out that the affordable housing uh, scheme that has been promised for three or four years now by the government, that absolutely nothing has materialised and that we need a genuine national affordable housing scheme. And insofar as there's any sort of affordable projects being done, I pointed out, they're in many cases not affordable. So again, to take one of the pilots in my area, they're talking about an affordable scheme of 50 cost rental uh, or affordable rental units, but they're going to cost €1,200 a month each, which is not actually affordable for somebody who's on average earnings. Somebody who's on average earnings, if you're talking about the one-third of your income, Mm. would expect to pay somewhere between seven and 900 a month, not 1200 a month. Uh, So if this is the best they can do on affordable, it's just no good. Mm. Uh, And this is the problem. I mean, we know that people on council housing lists are absolutely shafted. They're waiting 10 or 12 years. But there's also then a very big cohort of people whose income is just a little too high to be on the social housing list. But they're in no man's land because there's nothing available for them. Mm. There are no affordable rental or affordable purchase schemes that are in any way affordable for people on those earnings. And something has to be done urgently. And uh, speaking about a, a different kind of no man's land, if you like, uh, you were talking about the amount of uh, empty pro- houses in the country uh, and vacant sites for that matter. Yeah, and again, I mean, it's shocking. There's, there's uh, 200,000 empty uh, units uh, across the country. Uh, there's also hundreds, I mean, of, uh, 350 identified vacant sites, sites that are zoned, could be used for uh, building. Uh, but in fact, the ESRI pointed out that there's a lot of loopholes in the vacant site register sort of process, which means that a lot of sites that should be uh, designated as vacant um, are, are not, because developers can find ways to get around being put on the register. But in any event, the vacant site tax the government is talking about is very, very minimal. It starts at 3% this year if a size is vacant and goes up to 7%. But the problem is that the value of those properties are shooting up so much more than that that this isn't going to prevent land hoarding and sites being left vacant. And what's needed is a much more punitive uh, vacant site or empty property tax, which will force those homes back into use of those sites to to be developed for, for housing. And and Mick Wallace, indeed, had a mm. bill before the door which was proposing that it would be a 25% uh, tax. So it would really be punitive and mean that people hoarding that land would have to bring it into use. <clears throat> OK, uh, well, you uh, highlighted some of uh, the problems and you said that the government often asks if uh, the opposition has any solutions when you highlight uh, these problems. And uh, you said that uh, they were a few practical proposals. Uh, the Thorns just said it was good to hear some positive uh, proposals, but uh, I'm not sure how genuine he was in saying that. Uh, we'll hear a little bit more of what Simon Coveney had to say to you. The idea that you keep calling for state intervention as if state intervention isn't happening. I mean, we have introduced rent pressure zones, which essentially is the alternative to rent freezes, uh, because it it limits um, um, the the rent inflation that's there. And we've extended the powers of rent pressure zones to include cuckoo funds uh, in relation to um, uh, the the rent that they charge after after the first... Uh, initial rent that's set. So we are intervening in many areas in the housing market, but we need to be careful that our interventions are not counterproductive 
as many of the, uh, the interventions that you propose would be. All right, well, that's uh, Simon Coveney uh, responding to you, Richard Boyd Barrett, in uh, the Dáil last week. And I think when the government talk uh, about the housing crisis, uh, they uh, genuinely show a, a great sense of self-belief uh, rather than introducing the kind of counterproductive measures that you were suggesting, despite your well intentions. Well, I mean, I think the evidence speaks for itself. And anybody out there who is either looking to get council housing or is looking to buy something that is affordable or is caught up in this, you know, spiralling rent situation wouldn't be very convinced by what the government have done because it just hasn't worked. Rents have continued to spiral upwards. Uh, The, you know, the supply of affordable housing is negligible. Uh, and people can often see with their own eyes the empty properties that are sitting around, the uh, empty mm. sites that are lying there that could be used for housing, and it's a source of incredible frustration for people who are caught up in this housing crisis uh, in one shape or form or another uh, to see all these things happening, and nothing is, is moving. Uh, and in fact, I mean, it was interesting, I was at the uh, Budget Scrutiny Committee, which I'm a member of, last week and you had somebody who you certainly wouldn't describe as kind of left-wing ideologues the construction industry federation actually saying that the government's own targets for house building are simply not going to be met and they were categoric about it Mm. Uh, they said the private sector was simply not capable of meeting the targets that the government have set uh, so it's not just the left who are saying this, it's just obvious. Because it's too expensive to build houses, is it? It's too expensive to mm. build houses. Mm. They simply can't build them any cheaper. And that means they have to be subsidised in some way if we're going to get them down to affordable levels. Uh, or, because the other way you can mm. deliver cheap housing is for the state to build on its own land, which is much cheaper because you don't have the land costs. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are figures available for houses being built... If the state does it itself on its own land, they can they can build for about one hundred and seventy to two hundred thousand. But if you go to the private sector, because of land costs, mm. servicing costs, all sorts of other things, you're talking about uh, houses costing three hundred and thirty thousand to build. Or you'll come across other obstacles. Perhaps uh, you were talking about Japanese knotweed, and uh, you sounded somewhat frustrated by that. Well, that was just absolutely extraordinary because, again, we, we uh, at my committee, the mm. National Finance Development Agency and the Housing Agency, were talking about we were talking about sites where they were trying to develop affordable housing, and one such site was in Ticknock, which is in the Dublin Mountains. And extraordinarily, uh, among other things, there was servicing cost issues. But among other things, there was a major Japanese knotweed mm. problem, and because of the cost of clearing the knotweed, that was going to mean that housing that was supposed to be specifically affordable housing was going to become unaffordable. Mm. Now, that's crazy. I mean, if Japanese knotweed is going to make affordable housing unaffordable, Mm. we've got a serious problem. Well, we do. I mean, when you get Japanese knotweed, you have a serious problem and uh, it'll destroy the foundations of anything that you build on it or anything that's built near it. No, absolutely. But But the point is that... Having to clear it, and clearly you have to clear those things. I'm not mm. disputing that there are difficulties in particular sites. Of course there are. But the point is that if doing the clearing work is going to mean that the houses that are then built mm. are totally unaffordable, what's the point? Mm. 
there is simply no point in building houses that cost north of 380, 400, 450, or as I said to you, average prices in my area, 570. That, they are useless to anybody but people on the very highest incomes who, to be honest, are not the people who are affected by the housing crisis. We need housing that is built for people who are on average and lower earnings because they're the people who can't get anything at the moment. And the government has to say, when we are building affordable housing or developing an affordable scheme, they have to say affordability means you won't be paying more than a third of your income. And they have to backfit the financing and the development costs on that basis. And if that means uh, trying to recover their costs over a much longer period, putting a bigger government subsidy in at the start Mm. in order to bring those costs to affordable levels, then that is what has to be done. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. People Before Profit TD for Dunleary, Rathdown, Richard Boyd Barrett. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to a protest uh, that was held at the European Commission offices in Dublin yesterday by the IFA. Its President Joe Healy is on the line and uh, a lot of concern about uh, this Mercosur deal with South American countries. Uh, Tell us about your protest yesterday, Joe Healy. A huge amount of concern, Michael, and uh, look, from where we look at it, it's it's a sellout of Irish and European beef. It's hypocrisy of the highest order when when you take climate change into account, and it's uh, double standards in relation to the whole areas of production. And what we're trying to do is to ensure and to safeguard the livelihoods of our farmers for the future, and particularly our beef farmers. We have huge uncertainty in in the light of Brexit, at the moment, the EU is 102% self-sufficient for beef. If the Brexit goes wrong and if there's a no-deal Brexit, we could become 116% self-sufficient. And this Mercosur deal with the South American countries uh, has the potential to lobby another almost 100,000 tonnes of beef into the onto the EU market. And the Mercosur, when we talk about Mercosur countries, we're talking about Brazil, mm. Paraguay, Uruguay and Argentina. And mm. they fail particularly Brazil, fails to tick so many boxes in relation to climate change, in relation to animal traceability, animal welfare, slave labour, deforestation. And when you have the European Commission or the Food and Veterinary Authority saying that the competent authorities in Brazil are unable to guarantee the relevant export requirements for the beef that's been exported, to me that's a damning indictment of, of a country and a country that we shouldn't be increasing our imports from. Uh, and what would it mean for the consumer when we go in uh, to do the grocery shopping? Uh, is it possible to import beef from South America and have it on supermarket shelves here or in another European country to replace Irish beef at a, a cheaper cost? It's well. I I, I don't know. Uh, I can't guarantee that to be any cheaper. But what I could guarantee is that the same levels of traceability uh, wouldn't be there. You know, we have to tag our animals. We have to register them. They can be traced from farm to fork. I've been in Brazil, and the records there are so loose compared to the watertight recording systems and registration systems that we have, uh, not only in Ireland, but right across the EU. So I think from a consumer point of view, when you talk to any consumer, they like to um, to 
purchase and consume the food that's uh, produced locally and whether that's in Ireland or across the EU that's the preference of the consumer and I think also and there's a lot of talk about climate change we've we see the likes of Brazil their scant regard for climate change uh, the Bolsonaro the Prime Minister over there uh, and his government they've recently over the last number of months they've authorised 150 extra pesticides uh, to be used in Brazil and you know all the time everything we talk about in the EU everything that's been pushed in the EU it seems to be the opposite journey they're going on in relation or in the, those South American countries and particularly Brazil what we want is a level playing field uh, so that what we are competing with that the standards of production and the costs of production are very similar to our own and uh, we've called on the Commissioner Hogan and the Taoiseach and the government to either stop prevent or reject this Mercosur deal from going through because what it will mean and the uh, European Commission Giant Research Centre has done a report on this it'll mean a 7 billion euro loss to the beef sector across the European Union and that's a sector that's constantly under price pressure um, and viability pressure anymore to come in uh, at the same time that Brexit isn't uh, sorted is wrong and it's reckless Right. Is it in the gift of Phil Hogan, let alone uh, the Taoiseach, uh, to intervene in this? Well, it is very much so because, you know, Commissioner Hogan, he he deals with his fellow commissioners and Commissioner Malmstrom is the Commissioner for Trade. And, you know, it's it's long since seen as a a desire of hers uh, when she offered 70,000 tonnes of beef to the Mercosur countries first up before the negotiations mm. hardly started at all. So commission, the College of Commissioners, they can influence each other. They're constantly uh, talking to each other. But also, um, you know, I think when it goes to the council, it has to get um, approval from the member states. And that's where our Taoiseach and the Irish government comes in. Because mm, the council is made up of uh, the, the presidents and prime ministers of uh, the yeah. various countries. Uh, the commission made up uh, of... Uh, Phil Hogan, for example, who's uh, the Agricultural yes. Commissioner, who you would think would have a, a say given the impact o- on beef, but you mentioned uh, Commissioner Malstrom, and she's uh, more focused on uh, trading cars and that sort of thing than she is on beef, is she not? Well, that's, that appears to be the problem. Um, you know, and it's... We, we fully accept... Uh, trade and the need for trade and we're, I'm here in Geneva this morning at a meeting uh, in WTO Uh, so like, you know, as an exporting country we uh, fully accept that there has to be trade, but trade on a level playing pitch, trade uh, with, from an agricultural point of view, uh, and I speak on behalf of Irish farmers, we find it very difficult to comprehend or to accept you know, politicians, EU politicians preaching to us about climate change and about the need to to reach our targets and we want to do that but it's very difficult to to accept that at the same time that those same EU politicians are willing to do trade with the likes of Brazil because if you take it to produce a kilo of beef uh, in Ireland we produce between 15 and 18 kilos of CO2 to produce a kilo of beef in Brazil it takes 80 kilos of CO2 then you know transported halfway around the world it just gives you an idea of the massive amounts of carbon emissions and the damage uh, to the to the climate mm. that that's doing. How, how uh, is there such a difference? 
Well, it's all to do with the, the, uh, deforestation, I suppose, in Ireland. We have just a natural uh, green grass growing that, and it's a cycle uh, that we have, you know, where and we, we're regarded in the, as the top carbon efficient producers of dairy products in Europe and in the top five in beef production. But when you say that cycle, you know, the cow eats the grass, uh, she produces the, the beef, um, you know, it goes back in, uh, what she excretes goes back into the soil, uh, the grass sequesters carbon from the atmosphere. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a cycle that's done there. And, um, there was a recent report, a worldwide report, that said mm. we produce 558 million tonnes of carbon per year. 548 million tonnes of that is sequestered, uh, and 188 million tonnes of it worldwide comes from agriculture. So, you know, if we... Um, agriculture at the level it's at uh, around the world, you know, does its job in relation to sequestration, uh, whether it's hedges forestry or grassland. Okay, but uh, doing a deal with uh, these countries, a, a trade deal which uh, would obviously involve agricultural products but other products uh, as well is uh, not a, a new topic for discussion. It's something that's uh, being discussed for 20 years and you mentioned Brexit. Uh, uh, in the event of Brexit, it's most likely that the United Kingdom will do a deal with these countries, isn't it? Yes, um, but like it takes... The average to do a trade deal is seven years. So it's not just something that happens overnight. Um, you know, I think Mercosur, for example, is been talked about since 2012. Um, and obviously we're very focused on the agricultural side of it. We went to Argentina uh, last year to try and ensure that uh, the Mercosur deal wouldn't go through at that stage, and it didn't. Uh, but it seems to be the talk of it at the moment is that it's imminent. And uh, that's why we want the Commissioner and our Taoiseach to redouble their efforts to ensure that Irish and European beef farmers aren't sold out just in order to secure a deal. That we're not, we don't want to be the sacrificial lamb for. Uh, the trade of cars or financial instruments around the world. Mm, and uh, is it uh, that uh, Phil Hogan is restricted in how he can represent Irish farmers or is he uh, doing his job sufficiently uh, in your estimation or do you think that he, he's a spectator in this process? No, I would I would actually argue that uh, Commissioner Hogan has done a very good job as European Commissioner for Agriculture. Um, I'm first vice president of COPA, which is the umbrella body for European farm organisations. Um, <clears throat> so we deal a lot with the different uh, commissioners, and obviously um, the Commissioner for Agriculture would be key in that. And he's well regarded around Europe as having done a very good job as Agricultural Commissioner. I think this is a big test uh, of him to ensure that Irish and European agriculture, um, and like, you know, he's the European Commissioner. Um, that's that's his job. So the work that he does is not to safeguard something in Ireland. It's to safeguard something in Europe that has to do with agriculture. And obviously we'll benefit as a result of that. So we're, we've been very strong in COPA as well as in the IFA at highlighting to him the need for him as Agricultural Commissioner to ensure that Irish and European beef farmers aren't sold out and that we're not the sacrificial lambs in order to get this deal across the line. And why is it that you believe you'd be 
the sacrificial lamb. I mean, if Irish beef is of such a quality relative uh, to the South American beef, uh, why should you lose out in that trade war? Because if they're sending in 99,000 extra tonnes on top of, they already have, there's about 200, a quarter of a million tonnes of beef coming in from South America into the EU already. So this is a huge extra amount of beef uh, coming in. It's a third of what we send to the UK every year. Um, it's a sizable figure, um, you know, and it depends then on the breakdown of it, whether it's um, the, the high value cuts, steak cuts or the lower value the manufacturing cuts but I think you know there's a, we were always told in economics that there's a huge difference between 99% self-sufficiency and 101% self-sufficiency uh, we're already over 100% self-sufficient for beef in Europe and uh, as I said earlier in the interview Michael that mm-hmm. if there's a no deal Brexit uh, and the UK are out of the EU market for beef, well then the EU becomes 116% self-sufficient. Put in another 99,000 tonnes on top of that and, um, you know, the price of beef in Europe for farmers is only going to go one way and not necessarily for the consumer. OK. We leave it there. Joe Healy, thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Joe Healy is uh, the president of the IFA, the Irish Farmers Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Sergeant Ronan Farrelly of Navin Station joins us for the report this week and we begin in Drogheda and a shooting incident that I think most of us are aware of at this stage. Yes, good morning, Michael. Um, just to start off by recapping on the instant last Thursday night, the shooting in Drogheda. Um, it happened at 7.50pm in Terman Abbey. A number of shots were fired at a Volkswagen Golf car. A man in that car was hit and injured. Now, there were two cars involved in this attack. The first was a grey Peugeot 407, registration 07C2620, and a grey Honda Accord, registration 05D13539. Um, now this incident happened um, as I say at 7.50pm a short time later the grey Honda Accord was reported on fire at Cartown Railway Bridge in the Thermanfecken area and the grey Peugeot was reported on fire at Starina outside Cullen so Gardaí investigating this shooting are appealing to anybody who was in the Ellenwood Close area of Terman Abbey between 7 and 8pm last Thursday evening or anybody who drove through that area and may have recorded dash cam footage that could be of use to please contact the instant room in Drogheda. And likewise, anybody who was in the Cartown area in Termenfecken between 8 and 8.30pm, or indeed the Sterina area of Cullen between 8 and 8.45pm, to contact uh, the instant room in Drogheda. We're particularly anxious to establish the whereabouts of both of those vehicles in the days prior to the 20th of June. So again, if you have any knowledge that could assist us, please contact us in Drogheda or via the Garda Confidential Line 1-800-666-111. OK, and uh, as we know, there were a number of incidents uh, that followed and uh, a lot of fires. The latest petrol bombing, though, was in St. Lawrence's Park in Drogheda. That's correct. This happened um, the early hours of Sunday morning at 1.25am. A car was set on fire at St. Lawrence's Park. Now, the owner managed to extinguish the fire just before Gardy arrived. Um, the rear window of the vehicle was smashed with a block 
and a petrol bomb was thrown into the car. Now, we know from our investigation so far that there were two men involved in this attack. So, again, we are appealing to anybody who was in that part of Drogheda the early hours of Sunday morning, around 1.25am, if they can uh, assist us in any way, to please contact us in Drogheda. Okay, we go to Laytown, where a robbery occurred last Saturday. This robbery happened at lunchtime on Saturday. Um, It happened at a dry cleaner premises on the Golf Links Road in Bettystown. At 12 noon, a lone male walked into the premises. He was wearing a balaclava and he was carrying a steel bar and he threatened a female member of staff there. He actually knocked her to the ground during the incident. He left the scene with a small amount of cash and he got into uh, a grey estate car partial registration 07D and he left the scene. Now he's described as aged between 16 and 17 approximately and he was wearing a grey top. So Gardy at Laytown are appealing for any information in relation to that robbery for people to please contact them. All right. A burglary in Kells last Friday to report on next. Yes, this was the early hours of Friday. At 1am, the Aldi premises on the Cavan Road in Kells was broken into. Uh, the culprits got in via one of the emergency doors and they took 37 bottles of spirits. So quite a consignment taken there. They would have had to use transport more mm. likely. So Guardian Kells are appealing to anybody who was around that part of Kells um, and they might have seen a suspicious vehicle or suspicious individuals. The time was 1am, uh, the early hours of last Friday, to please contact Kells Garda Station if you can assist with that one. All right, and no doubt uh, there's the chance uh, that they might be trying to sell it off as well if you're offered yes. cheap alcohol to maybe consider where it's Absolutely. come from. Uh, we're going to conclude uh, this week uh, with a, a number of thefts. All of these occurred from parked cars, all of which were parked in scenic spots. That's right, Michael. The first incident here happened last Thursday um, between 10 past 11 and 11.30 in the morning. A van was broken into at the Hill of Slane and two French tourists had their property taken, which included passports and travel documents and so on. Um, That, as I say, happened at the Hill of Slane on Thursday. Mm, You never realise how valuable your passport is until you try to travel without one. Very disruptive Mm, to your holiday. Um, On Friday then, we had a car broken into um, at the Coast Road in Annie Gasson. This was between 10.45am and 10.55am and a handbag was taken from that car. Now, that handbag was found a short time later, thrown out at Clotterhead. So the culprits obviously travelled along the coast, heading up from Annie Gasson towards Clotterhead. And they may have struck again because a short time later a car was broken into at the Baltray Road in Termenfecken and again a handbag was taken there and that was that was again Friday morning. And on Saturday we're back to the Hill of Slane um, between 1.15pm and 2pm a jeep was broken into and on this occasion four American tourists had their property taken. Now that included an expensive drone and an expensive Canon uh, zoom lens, a 24 to 70 millimeter lens. So somebody might be trying to offload that type of uh, property. Mm. Uh, And again, their passports and cash and so on were taken. Um, If anybody can assist with any of those crimes, obviously to contact us. the summer is coming now mm. hopefully in the next few it's days it's hard to believe isn't it I mean when you pull up to these places there's nothing yeah. around there's nobody around uh, and you wouldn't think that there's any risk uh, but there are people there and they're watching exactly they're mm. driving around mm. they'll see an opportunity they only take a few seconds to smash a window and grab a bag so again we appeal to people mm. if you're parking your car in these areas don't leave any property in your car um, of course lock your car before you head off mm. 
Um, if you see any suspicious activity, please do call us. Try and get a registration number of a car. That's really helpful to us. Um, and just, you know, there are a lot of these spots around Loudon Mead. We patrol them. We can't be mm. everywhere all of the time. Um, but these guys only need a split second. Mm. To and you, I mean, you, you can't blame people leaving stuff in the car because it's the last thing you'd ex- expect. But your yeah. advice is expect the unexpected. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Michael. All right. We'll leave it there for this week. And thank you indeed. Sergeant Ronan Farrelly of Navan Garda Station will return to the Guard Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Before we go, in the few minutes that we have left, let's go back uh, to some more of your calls and comments. Marie has come back into the studio with us. I am indeed back in, Michael, and we've had some more response in relation to the scoliosis waiting times. Kira can't understand how the government can justify keeping children waiting for such essential surgery, particularly given, given the level of pain they are in while they are waiting. To hear your guest, Louise O'Reilly, talk about that man's young son crying with pain while being bathed would break your heart, and to hear how badly his condition has worsened whilst waiting for his operation is unforgivable, I feel, on the government's part. They are failing the most vulnerable in our society yet again. They are too busy trying to figure out who leaked the Maria Bailey story mm. rather than doing the job they're elected to do. Some mm. strong words yeah, there. Well, sometimes these things take on a, a life of their own. There's a momentum behind stories and there certainly was a momentum behind uh, the waiting times for scoliosis patients in particular for children because it's so important at a young age uh, to have it yes. treated. At the time of the primetime report there were lots of promises uh, and it's only when you follow up on it you realise that very little has changed. Yes and Alan mm. says he feels more needs to be done to tackle these waiting times that children are going to be left with irreversible damage to their bodies and what is the government doing about it? Nothing. It appears that's what they're doing. Nothing, says Alan. Mm. Um, on the Drogheda feud, Anne phoned in and says that she hates the actions, that the actions of a few are tarnishing the whole town again and giving it such a bad name in the minds of many. There, it's a great wee town where community means everything and people are willing to go above and beyond to help each other out. But because of a few, it's getting the name of a no-go area and this makes her unbelievably sad. Mm. The town she grew up in and love has been lost to violence and crime. Well, I suppose that's what happens when people start firing guns and built up areas in the middle of the day. Have we time for one more? Very quickly. David thinks Richard Boyd Barrett makes a lot of sense in relation to a rent freeze. It should be implemented as an emergency to try and tackle the housing crisis once and for all, even if it's just for two years, says David. Okay, thanks for that, Marie. David, for that matter, and everybody who has been in touch with us, that has to be the final word on our programme today because our time has run out on us. Before we go, thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Marie in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on Ellen. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.